Good morning, everyone. Telling you, there's not a place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here, right now with all of you. And Tim Smith shaved his beard off. I tell you what, that's just kind of a, that's a disappointment. I'm going to change my topic on the fly. It sure is good to be together. We're in, we're in week two of a three-week series on Noah per Brooklyn's request. So y'all are, uh, and, and I, I don't know, she hasn't expressed disappointment to me yet. I, I brought this out last week, and, and I think you'll see it even more so this week. Well, the story of Noah is certainly one that we love to tell in our children's classes when we really dig into the story. It's not a children's story at all. So we're wrestling with some um, pretty difficult things in, in, as we kind of step up to this first time in history when God really demonstrates his wrath in a, in a powerful way. You know, last week we, we looked at creation and how just in this short amount of time such corruption could, could spread itself all over the earth. And, and God uh, looked upon Noah with grace because he was a man who was righteous uh, amidst depravity. He was a man who walked with, walked with God. And, and we kind of held him up as a modern day example as people who also were in dark times surrounded by a lot of depravity and a lot of fallenness, uh, a world that's been infected with sin. We are also called to, to walk with God in the midst of that, um, to be obedient to Him in the same fashion as Noah. Today we're going to kind of walk up to the story of the, of the, the flood itself um, and wrestle with some of what that teaches us about how we should act and, and God and, and the type of God that we, He is. And then next week we're going to kind of wrap up our series by looking at everything that happens after the flood. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. We're going to read this account of the flood. We're going to begin seven days prior to the rains showing up. I mentioned last week that, that I believe the story of Noah is the most formidable display of God's wrath in all of Scripture. And I believe today is the day that we reach the pinnacle of that and we see it exercised in a powerful way. Let's read the text, the first 10 verses. We're going to be, I'm not putting verses on the screen this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 7 and over in 1st and 2nd Peter most of the time. So I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to those two passages. Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. All right. So here we are at the beginning of the, the beginning of the action. 
And, and while last week we kind of backed up and, and, and looked at all the, the infection of sin and how it kind of grew into Noah's time, we didn't talk specifically about what happened during the period that Noah was building the ark. And at the very least, I see here that he was done at least seven days early, so he was not a preacher who, who waits till the last minute. Well, he was a preacher. We're going to read about that in a second. But he wasn't a procrastinating preacher because he had the ark prepared in plenty of time. So you procrastinators take, take heed of that. You know, we often talk about how Noah preached for 100 years um, leading up to the, the flood. And, and there's likely some truth in that. We don't actually get most of that from the Old Testament account. We know that it was no more than 100 years that Noah would have been working on the ark. Because he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth when he was 500 years old. We see that at the end of chapter 5. And, and here at the beginning of chapter 7, we see he was 600 years old when the floodwaters showed up. So there's a 100-year window that the ark could have been built in. And it was at least finished seven days prior to that. Um, the information that we have about what happened during this interim period while Noah was working so hard actually comes from the New Testament. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, we're going to actually zero in on verse 20 right now. We'll look at 18 through 22 a little bit later. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20, we read that the, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared and which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So during this period of construction of the ark, we see that, that God himself was, was patiently waiting, waiting for Noah to build, perhaps patiently waiting to see if any of those around him would respond. But what was Noah doing? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we find that out. We read, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So it's talking about God's action again, but here it gives us some insight into what Noah was doing while he built the ark. The text tells us that he was a herald of righteousness. What is a herald? A herald is someone who stands up in front of people and tells them things. That's what Noah was doing while he was building the ark, is he was heralding righteousness, what it looks like to, to do good and to, and to be good to the world that was so depraved. So Noah was preaching. And then in Luke chapter 17, verse 27, Jesus shares with us what the world around him was doing. In Luke 17, 27, we read, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So what was happening during this interim period while Noah built the ark? Well, God was patiently waiting. Noah was preaching. And the world around them was eating and drinking and marrying and being married without a care in the world. So why didn't they repent why didn't they listen to the things that Noah was saying? And, and the truth is the text doesn't specifically tell us. We, we know for sure this one thing was stated, that there was no space in their heart for good. We see that in Genesis 6-5, and we talked about it last week. So, so Noah was preaching in this culture that had given themselves over totally to depravity. They had closed their hearts off to good. But I think we can also make some assumptions because of our knowledge about mankind and, and how we operate. 
I think that there's a chance that those in the world saw no need for a redirection. They maybe knew nothing different. We know for sure that they were not listening to the truth, the truth that was pointing them to the future. Instead, they were living in the moment. So they could look up at the sky and they could see that it wasn't raining. And if it wasn't raining, why would they feel a sense of urgency at the beckoning of this crazy man building this boat? The passage in Luke sums it up well. If we back up and read verses 26 through 30, Jesus paints this picture. He says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, they were just too busy doing their thing to pay attention to this guy talking about the future. And I stand back and I look at the world and I ask myself, is this not the same thing that's happening today all around us? I mean, Jesus was spot on in this text. He says, just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And over and over again throughout history, we see people fail to heed the warnings about what's going to happen in the future. But one thing is for certain, what we are experiencing here is temporary. While the culture may feel no urgency, what about you? Now, I've uh, probably inaccurately represented myself because there was a time when I did like sports. <clears throat> so um, they were actually pretty important to me when I was in high school. And one of the things that was my favorite was football, of course, because we're in West Texas. And I, I think back to the time in the game when the two-minute warning would hit. The two-minute warning. What happens at the two-minute warning? Well, the play stops and you kind of get this free timeout. And then everyone regroups because the two-minute warning means that you're almost out of time. It means that there's a heightened sense of urgency. You have to adapt now the way that you're going to play. You're going to take a few risks that maybe you wouldn't be willing to take otherwise because if you're behind, it's time to get ahead. And if you're ahead, you better be sure that defense is ready because that other team is going to sell out to, during this period to make it happen. The two-minute warning lets us know that something is around the corner, a deadline that we have to meet. You know, we don't know when the end is going to hit. But we can at least know we are in the latter days. So where's our sense of urgency? Scripture tells us that we're not supposed to be sitting around on our laurels just waiting for Jesus to arrive. We're supposed to work and to marry and to live godly lives. But I wonder if we're prepared I wonder if we feel the same sense of urgency for ourselves. I wonder if we feel the sense of urgency for those in our culture who are not prepared. Are we playing the game like it's the first quarter or the fourth quarter? From car accidents to terminal illness to the second coming, we simply don't know when or where our time will be. But one thing we can be most certain of is that we do have an allotted time, each and every one of us. The story of Noah serves as an example for us today that while God's patience can feel painful at times, 
especially when we live in the midst of this depraved world, that his patience is not infinite. And in Genesis, he is patiently planning the destruction of creation and the ushering in of a new era. Let's continue to read Genesis chapter 7, picking up in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were open, and, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Eventually, the time came for God to act, and when God decided to act, he acted in a powerful and magnificent way. My mind goes straight to verse 16. Right there at verse 16, and the Lord shut him in, and I wonder this, why did God seal the door? I don't know if any of you have ever had the privilege of going in a missile silo. There's 12 Atlas missile silos in the Abilene area, all decommissioned many, many years ago. I've gotten to go in four of them on different occasions, actually, and it's really fascinating. Um, when you enter a missile silo, you go through this little lone door that's sticking up in the middle of a field, and then you walk down a set of concrete steps, and you go around a series of 90-degree turns, and you come to what's called the blast doors. So these missile silos were designed to, to, to take on a direct hit um, um, of a bombing. And so there's these blast doors built that are curved on one side, and they're, they're poised in a way that they can slam shut, and they had these huge metal, metal cogs that would lock in place. You would go through one blast door, and then you would go around a corner, and there was another blast door that would go in place. And then you would go around another corner and, and down a set, of, a set of stairs and into the main control room that was suspended um, in the middle of this concrete um, tomb, I guess you could say. I mean, I don't know how else to, to say it. And I found it really interesting that all of these provisions were put in place to seal them in from the outside, yet they're in the middle of the control room. If you looked up on the roof, there was a round hatch with a, with a rope that ran over to the side. And, and on the side, there was this handle you could pull. And if you, if you pulled that rope, it would remove a pin from this hatch, and the hatch would fall down. And this tube that went all the way to the surface had a ladder in it, and it was packed completely full of sand. So you couldn't get to it from the top, but if you pulled that lever out, the sand would fall and it would make an exit way so you could get out of the control center. I don't know why you would want to leave that place in the event that you were sealed in, um, but, but for some reason that made everyone feel better about being inside of it. I think there's something about human nature that wants to maintain a, a sense of autonomy. Um, we want to think that we always, um, even if the choice isn't a good one, have a choice the ability to choose to leave when we so discern. As I look at this text, I come to the realization that Noah exercised autonomy up to a certain point. 
He made decisions to be obedient to God, but when we get to verse 16, God comes up and God shuts the door, and it's at that point that Noah no longer has his autonomy. It's at that point when choices are no longer available, and it will be such for us someday. There will come a day when we no longer can make choices. There will come a day when, when everyone will want to be on the boat, but the choice has already been made. I wonder had Noah had a, a latch on the inside, what he would have felt like, and would he have been tempted to open the door as the waters rose and those on the outside realized that they were on the wrong side of the door and they wanted in? What would it have been like in the first couple of days of the flood as life slowly was extinguished from the planet? People tried to grab on to the outside of the boat. Maybe pry the door open themselves, begging that Noah would open it. Of all the statements in the story of Noah, verse 16 stands out to me as the most difficult. Because it was at this moment that God sealed the fate of evil. It was at this moment that the determination had been set. The course was irreversibly moving forward, and no one save God himself had the power to change anything. So why then did the water prevail for so long? We're going to read verses um, 21 through 23, but first I want to skip down to Genesis chapter 8. In verses 13 through 14, it gives us uh, an exact number so that we know how long Noah was in the ark. It says, In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the, off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So if we assume a lunar calendar like most scholars did, Noah would have been on the ark for three 170 days. It seems a little excessive, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, I look at that and think, well, God, I mean, I think everyone would have drowned way before that. 370 days is how long Noah was on the ark. I mean, the first thing that, that we have to put forward is, is that utter destruction was the goal. That's what God intended to do. In verses 21 through 23 of chapter 7, we read, All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Nothing else. You know, this is the reason doctors are so particular when they prescribe you an antibiotic. You might start feeling better after five days, but what do they always tell you? You're going to feel good, but don't you stop taking this antibiotic. You take it all the way to the end of the 10 days. And why is that? Well, that's because you might start feeling better, but it hasn't finished doing its job. And for an antibiotic to work properly, it has to, to totally kill all of, the, all of the bacteria that are in your body. And so you keep taking it until everything is gone. Maybe that was a little bit of what was happening here. He had to ensure utter destruction. We look at the, the pattern that happened with the Israelites and what do we see? 
the same type of commands. As they would go into the promised land and they would conquer, God would tell them to utterly, and utterly annihilate these groups of people. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how that could be okay. But the same principle was at play because we see when they failed to do that, there was a seed. There was a seed of, of sin that could grow and it had tremendous impact on their faithfulness later on down the road. So God, at the very least in this moment, was shooting for absolute, utter destruction. 370 days so that there was no shape, form, or fashion that any sort of life could remain that could possibly reseed this, this depravity that existed prior to the flood. But it seems like this could have been accomplished quite a bit faster than 370 days. So I don't know exactly why, but I think as we read this story, it points us to some powerful truths about God, something about his patience and his power. The duration, the broadness, and the severity of the flood makes it glaringly obvious to us that God is huge, that God is powerful, and that God wins with absolute, utter authority. I think God was teaching us something about himself by the duration of what we see happening here. I want to ask a question to everyone, shifting gears a little bit. How many of you just love traveling through airports? And how many of you does it really stress out? It stresses me out to be in an airport. Give me, I want to see a raise of hand of those of you who traveling in airports is a stressful experience. All right, we got a few of you at least. I, I don't know what it is. Um, well, I think that I do know what it is. I think the main reason traveling by air is so stressful is that we're just really not in control. You know, if I can drive my car, I get to decide, at least with some, well, Brianna gets to decide when we leave and, and when we, well, the kids decide when we stop. I don't have any autonomy, do I? That's, yeah, I should have thought that through in my notes. It, but when you're driving a car, you, you have some control. When you're traveling through an airport, though, it's different because you're, you're subject to their schedule. And so it doesn't matter where you're going. It doesn't matter how important your connecting flight is. It doesn't matter what you're doing on the other side. It doesn't matter the, the grand plans that you have and the things that you're going to accomplish. If you don't meet their schedule, if you're not at the gate when the door has been shut, you're not getting on the plane. And they're not turning the plane around for you, and they're not coming back to the gate, and they're not having a bathroom break. That's not how air travel works. When the gate is shut, the game is over. If we were to summarize all that we've seen, I think that we would learn some things about God that, that mirror this pretty well. After all, this story isn't about Noah. This story is for sure about God. As I look at it, I see that God is patient, but God is not infinitely patient. We don't know the flight schedule, but we know that there is a departure date. That we can be certain of. We also learn that when God begins to act, the door's going to be sealed. Your fate won't change at that moment. The boarding time is not going to be extended. There is only one flight headed where we want to go. And when the gate has been shut, the gate has been shut. We learn some other things like, God's going to destroy evil with death. And he's going to preserve righteousness with life. So we might have questions about what that looks like, but we can certainly know this. Where we are heading is going to look very different than how it looks right now. And we can be confident that God, when he starts something, he finishes it. 
the destruction will be complete. And we will never again come back to the things that we see today. We can be confident that this story will be repeated. You cannot uphold biblical teachings and ignore this reality. All throughout Scripture we see sin is defeated with death. We see it point us towards the day when a a second round of cleansing will be on the way. So I ask myself where we're at in the process. Where do we stand today in God's big plan, in the big scheme of things? Over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, I think we get a little window of an answer. I'm actually going to read verse 10 first, because uh, I don't want this to be missed. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But I certainly would never stand up here and proclaim that we can know when the day of the Lord will be. It's going to come like a thief. And throughout all of Scripture, this is a, this is a common theme. We aren't going to know the departure time and date um, when, when, when the plane leaves. That's not something that we have access to. I, I do think, however, it would be fair to, to make some claims. When we began at the Genesis chapter 7, we saw that there was a, a seven-day window. When the ark had been built... And God told Noah that the destruction was coming and it was imminent. And they were preparing things and getting themselves and the animals on the ark. And I think it's fair for us to say that we are in this seven-day phase, somewhere within it. We're told the floods are on the way. We know that the ark has been built and there's a place of safety and security. And right now God God is gathering up those who will get on the ark. And he's still, oh, so patient. In fact, if we back up and read verses 8 and 9 of that same passage, it says, Do not not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is at a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just like God was patient In the days of Noah, he's patient today. We don't serve a God who who rejoices at the idea of people perishing in the flood. He didn't rejoice then and he doesn't rejoice now. He doesn't want people to perish. But he's warned us that there is a day coming around the corner when his patience will be extinguished. And so I wonder, do we eat and drink, and marry, unaware, or are we prepared? Which brings up my next question. How? How do we prepare? 1 Peter 3, 18-22 connects Christ's suffering with our sins, and it tells us that baptism corresponding to these flood waters that we're learning about today, saves us in the likeness of Noah. Let's read it. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So I look at this text and it tells me that your, your baptism is what's going to bring you to the other side. That's a, baptism is a, a powerful act of obedience. But note in this text that it's not just an outward act. It calls it an appeal to God for a good conscience. That tells me that there is something internal that happens through the process of baptism, an internal cleansing that is going on. You know, as I look through Scripture and I, I look out to the world around us, I think it's obvious that the, the deluge of the God's second coming, His second judgment hasn't started yet. But it is coming at some day. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And he's built a boat. He's built a boat to carry us to the other side. And it's Jesus and, and his resurrection. I mean, that is our escape plan. That is our escape hatch. And, and by being baptized, we board the boat. And we become part of the saved few. Now, the New Testament is chock full of instructions on how we are supposed to live in the interim. I think you could sum that up under the umbrella of love, but, but all of those teachings assume that you are on the boat. So, to a small subset of our audience this morning, I ask this question. If you haven't been baptized, why would you delay? Tomorrow isn't promised. There is a day hastening when judgment will be pronounced. And there, there's a boat. And it's sitting there. And it's, it's waiting to provide security and protection. It's, it's waiting to usher you on to the other side of eternity and this glorious reality that awaits us. The story of Noah is absolutely, definitively not a children's story. The story of Noah is a warning shot. A warning shot that's been ringing for thousands of years to point humanity to the fact that this is how God operates. That there is a day coming when, when judgment will hit. And there's a day when you're no longer going to be able to make a choice. Jesus is the only way to survive the, the next round of God's wrath. And, and baptism is how we join ourselves to him. So here in a moment we're going to offer an invitation. And if you haven't been baptized, I hope you'll take advantage of that. To the rest of you, um, I, I want to ask a, a different question. To the rest of you baptized believers who are waiting on the boat, how do you wait? I think we get our answer from 2 Peter. You could read the whole second and third chapter, and I think the more that you poured over that, the clearer and clearer picture you would get of what it's supposed to look like. But we'll read some excerpts. I want to read chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. The first thing we have to do is understand that the story is on repeat until the final judgment day. It reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment... 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then, then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We can live in a broken world with full faith and confidence that God is in control, that God is operating in the same fashion that He has operated all throughout the Old Testament, that He's going to protect the righteous and that He's going to preserve them, but that He is storing up wrath for those who are living in an unrighteous fashion. Sometimes it can be painful watching God be patient, but we're called to patience. The second thing that I want to encourage you to do is to continue to herald righteousness. Preach. Tell people about it. Because we serve a God who doesn't want anyone to perish. We already read it, but 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not wishing that any should perish. This is the reason for the divine directive to share the good news with the world around us. And whether they listen or not is not up to us. Noah preached, and we are called to preach while God patiently waits. I am convinced that one of the reasons he hasn't exercised the strong arm of justice and brought this next round of judgment on the world is because there are still people willing to repent. And as long as there are people willing to repent, God is patient. Will you be one of the tools that he uses to bring someone onto the boat? Because you could be. Finally, I want to encourage you to await the coming days with confidence. In 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13, we read this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says, in the interim, while you wait, while you preach, you can ignore what everyone else is doing. And what I want you to do is live lives of holiness and godliness and anticipation. Because he is preparing for us this new heaven and this new earth where righteousness dwells. And that's where the boat is going to take us when he exercises his final judgment. We can be excited about the coming days. There are two things we can have confidence in. The pending judgment and the preservation of God's people. When the day comes and the door is sealed, which side will you be on? When the day comes and the door is sealed, which side will you be on? You can get on the boat by being baptized into Christ. Then you spend your time on the boat calling for others to join. And in the interim, we live lives of holiness and, and godliness with anticipation. And if we do that, I don't know when the day is going to be. When the day comes that the door is sealed and it will come, you'll be on the right side. So if you're in danger, we invite you to step in the boat this morning. Let us baptize you.
If you have been struggling while you wait, let us pray for you. Let us partner with you. Let us bear your burdens. That's what we're here for. We are in this together. The invitation is open. Whatever your need might be, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.